Alright guys, welcome to CLD Talks, I'm your host Connor Maxwell. On this week's episode I'm joined with Gary Fraser who's the Programme Director for the MA Learning and Communities course which is part of Maury House School of Education and Sport uh, through the University of Edinburgh. So on this episode we talk about Gary's experience and what initially got him interested within CLD, um, how this then became his career and he worked within multiple places for um, local authorities. Um, he also um, discusses what got him into and interested in lecturing, um, his passion for reading and helping others and um, we also talk about his findings within his PhD which I think he's all find uh, very interesting. So without further ado, here is Gary Fraser. Alright guys, welcome to CLD Talks. I'm your host Connor Maxwell. Today we are at Maury House at um, Edinburgh University and I'm sitting with Gary Fraser. So Gary, if you could just tell us a wee bit about yourself and your career in CLD so far. Okay, thanks Connor for inviting me on to the, the podcast. So I'm Gary Fraser. I've been uh, a CLD practitioner uh, since the late 1990s was when I first started doing youth work like a lot of people in CLD I came into the profession that way um, I think I was in my early 20s you know so I left school uh, and like a lot of people that I was at school with didn't have any idea really what I wanted to do yeah. Um, other than, you know, sit down the park drinking cheap cider and listening to Oasis and blah. <laughs> you know, so there was a few kind of absent years. <laughs> and then my parents said, look, you need to have a think about what you're doing, Aye. you know, if you want to go to employment. or And they were encouraging me to go to college mm. and, and, and try and make something of myself. So I went to college. I did, I think it was social studies, NC. Right. Social studies was the course that I did. I did my higher English at night school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was taught by people in the college who came from a community education background. Oh, I cool. didn't know what community education was. I mean, obviously I knew of youth clubs and yeah. things that were community education, but I didn't understand the concept. Mm-hmm. I, in my mind, wanted to do social work. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I thought I wanted to do. But the more I learned about community education, as as it was called then, this is before CLD, um, I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. I was interested in politics as well. And, you know, I was just starting to get political at that age. So community development appealed to me because, you know, it was about participation and democracy and empowerment that kind of thing so I thought yeah that that's a good match you know in terms of what I wanted to do yeah no that's really cool so then what did you do then after after college and your social sciences did you move on to study community education or did you go and I did an HNC and the course is still going it's an HNC working with communities I don't know why one of the criticisms I have of our profession Connor is that we use different names to describe the same thing right um, so the course was called Working with Communities. Yeah, that's what I'd done, the NC, Working with Communities. Yep. So and that was my access into my access mm-hmm. route into um, Edinburgh University. Yep. I came to Murray House, where we are just now. It used to be the teacher training college, so mm-hmm. all the teachers got taught here, and it was just merging into Edinburgh University when I came to do my degree. Cool. It was also the first year... That there was this new thing that had came out called emails, <laughs> <laughs> and the, I think the the teaching staff were just getting used to the kind of the ways in which Aye. kind of this is late nineties, early two thousands. The internet was, you know, 
transforming our work. Yeah. So that yeah, that was when I came to to Murray House to do the community education degree, as it was called then. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And then did you go? So did you go straight into I suppose teaching, or then did you go and work within different like youth clubs or local authorities, third sector? Um, what did you do after your degree? I worked in CLD. Yep. Um, I was in a political party at that time, and part of me was interested in going into politics, mm-hmm. not as a candidate. I never yeah. wanted to to do that. I'm quite introverted, and I think you have to be quite an extrovert to be yeah. in politics. But behind the scenes, I worked for a, an MSP um, and did a lot of work in the kind of region behind yeah. the scenes. Some of it, was, which was quite similar to, to CLD type mm-hmm. work. Uh, but then that fell apart for various reasons and I stayed in um, at CLD at first youth work yep. but then more so um, community development um, so I was in the field for quite a long time, yeah. I, I came out of university in 2004 mm-hmm. and then I did my I didn't do my PhD until 2015 so yeah. I was in the field for a while, yeah. working across the three strands of practice. I, I always took the view, some people specialise in one of the three areas, and back in those days we had three specific teams. Yeah. But I always took the view that CLD was an approach to working, and yeah. that you could work across the three yeah. domains of practice, is what we call them. Um, you know, I was saying to students yesterday, our degree, it's a bit like getting three degrees for the price of one. Yeah. You know, because you've got those three strands of practice in my younger days I was more drawn towards youth work Mm -hmm. and then I think you get to a certain age where you're just not cool (laughs) it's harder to communicate to young people you start I I felt that maybe when I got into my 30s and 40s you know and then it was moving into adult education was that just relatable side of things that you maybe felt possibly yeah Yeah, I mean I loved youth work in Mm -hmm. my 20s you know I would do youth clubs four or five nights a week, yeah. youth residentials, you know, it's regularly going away uh, for, 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 for weekends. I used to do a lot of outreach work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was tired, yeah. you know, that it, it's quite a tiring job. You ah. work in a lot of evenings as well. But it was, it was just a personal thing, ah. you know. I, I felt more and more kind of distant from youth culture mm-hmm. and, and, and less, you know, I, I, was, I was aware that, and I think we all do this in our work, you know, you put on a performance, yeah. you know, kind of performativity, and I, I was more aware of that, ah. but at the same time, doors were opening up to me in adult education, community development, it was the start, maybe not the start, but it was community planning mm-hmm. in those days, so there was a big push from, this would have been the Labour government, uh, around community planning, so started doing work in that context. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So what was it that made you want to do the PhD? So that was, was it that that you were maybe just falling away a bit for the youth work and you wanted a new challenge, or did it just appear and you were like, do you know what, I want to put myself through that really grueling task? I, I was always interested in academia. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was always interested in abstract ideas. I, I, I meet a lot of students that are very wary of theory mm-hmm. and like to go into practice. Yep. When I was at university, I was scared of the practice yeah. and liked the theory. I was I was I was comfortable in that environment. Mm-hmm. I liked reading. As I said, I was quite political. 
and 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 being a member of a political party at that time was good because you know you would often get the opportunities to go to like conferences and educational events and you know d- discuss ideas it was quite a left wing the Scottish Socialist Party it was quite a left wing political party so I started learning about Karl Marx and you know some of his ideas and that was complementing what I was learning at Murray House you know um, so yeah, naturally interested in ideas and politics, policy, um, academia. So it was a natural progression. I did a master's in social policy and criminology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that took a couple of years through the Open University, and then I went back to do my PhD. Twenty fifteen, yeah. I think thereabouts. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's it's. I think the PhDs. We actually just Laura Salon was actually I think the last episode to get published. Aye, well, I, well, she was on it, and she's just at the moment doing her PhD. So it was actually it was quite nice to have that conversation with her while she was still in the middle. It. She's trying to wrap it up. I think she's not got too long left. Um, so it's nice as well. Then we've got you, who's you've completed your PhD, yeah. um, and then you're obviously your um, lecturing here within the um, University of Edinburgh. So it's quite nice that people listening I suppose you can go back and listen to both and see that and we'll talk about your PhD a wee bit later on properly um, but so what was it that when you first seen I suppose about like the working with communities course and the community educators that made you really want to get involved within CLD? At that time uh, I was left wing you know probably more left wing than I am now I'm not right wing but you know kind of politics sometimes your views can change as you get older I was a very staunch believer in education I still am to some extent being a a way of changing society Mm -hmm. my dad had been very political was a trade unionist um, you know, was I think my dad would even describe himself as a communist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind Aye. socialist or social democrat. You know, Marxist. So I, I was brought up in that type of environment, and I, I wanted to work. I always thought it was a disgrace that you know, simply put, in a wealthy society, that people were poor, mm-hmm. uh, and that there was poverty and inequality. So to be part of a profession that was committed on paper at least, to challenge in that and, and doing something about it uh, was what motivated me. Yeah. And and most of my work in, in those days was in what, I, these terms are always problematic, mm. but, you know, poorer, quote-unquote, yeah. disadvantaged, marginalised communities. That was where I cut my teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that, yeah, I was saying I was meeting a group of students yesterday who are just enrolling onto our new yeah. degree programme and I was saying to them uh, that I was always, I always felt privileged to work in a profession that was tasked with promoting democracy. Because yeah. <laughs> very few professions can say that. Right. And CLD can, you know, um, to, to some extent. And it re- always referred to itself as an empowering profession. Yeah. That was the term that was commonplace. I think Charlie McConnell's book was called The Makings of an Empowering Profession. Yeah, no, that, that's really cool. It's a good way to try and... I suppose, I think, I'm trying to think back to other podcasts and know a lot of people that I think that we've spoke to. I'm just trying to think as we sort of go here. I suppose I'm maybe getting into it from more of a political point of view of that um, support. A lot of people have come into it from either 
they've volunteered in youth clubs, they fell into it through career change. Um, but it's a different point of view to look at it that way, that it's right, about okay. that change, I suppose. It's just, I suppose, it's an interesting way, because I think that's one of the things that even in uni that we sort of spoke about is we don't discuss that bit as much, I suppose, anymore. The political okay. side, I think, in CLD seems to have reduced a bit in terms of practice and really what we do, and especially in the environment that I've been in. Um, I could be totally wrong because I don't work everywhere and I don't see everything, but, you know, just from my personal experience, that's not been my experience. Um, and, and the political stuff also made me critical of CLD. Yeah. You know, it sounds like I'm going to contradict all of what I've said because, you know, as we teach our students, it's contested, it's mm-hmm. ambiguous, it's it's subject to different interpretations. Yeah. And it's not. I mean, th- there was a book in the 90s, uh, my colleague May Shaw edited it. It's called Radical Community Work. Mm. Um, and one of the authors made the argument that community development wasn't that radical. Mm-hmm. You know, it had always been caught up with the interests of the state and, you know, the sort of dominant politics of the period. So I was always quite critical yeah. of, 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 of CLD as well. And I, I worked in local government for a lot of years, Connor. And coming out of Murray House, I saw myself as an educator, mm. an informal educator. And one of the things that struck me, even back then, was just the amount of bureaucracy that was involved. Yeah. I, I remember being at meetings once. And we were talking about outreach youth work. And I said, I want to go out on the streets and do outreach youth work. But the view from the practitioners was, no, we don't do that. The youth workers that we employ go out and do that. It was was the same with the adult education programme. The CLD worker was often an administrative worker, and that's not a criticism, but they weren't always involved in frontline education. And I was quite demoralised by that because I wanted to be doing work that was overtly educational. Yeah. You know, part of me was attracted to college lecturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I used to think there was a case for community education being part of the colleges. It ended up in local government yeah. because of its history and you know the Alexander report and all that stuff. But um, I, I sometimes felt disillusioned yeah. at just the amount of bureaucratic work and behind the scenes work that was taking place rather than direct work, you know, there was a culture of paying sessional workers to do the hands-on work. Yeah, rather than doing it yourself Yeah, type thing. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I think that is like, that can be a, a big issue, especially like with bigger organisations. And that, to be fair, could be why there was also, we were always cut in terms of local government, where CLDs reduced and probably most local yeah. authorities, if you track it back and... You look at it and probably with the cost of living and how things are going, we don't know where we'll be, but we always seem to be the people that are like first, you know, in terms of education, if that's where you sit within, because for agile local authorities, some of you might be education, some of you might be within leisure, some people within something else, like libraries, for example, as well, I think I'm one local authority, but I don't know which one it is for the top of my head, but that placement as well um, can actually impact and the delivery and what you're supposed to do, because the attitudes are different. Yeah, and, and CLD community education was never a statutory service. Yeah. I think local authorities had to provide in law, I could be wrong here, but I think they had to provide in law a plan, mm-hmm. but they didn't have to provide a service, yeah. if you like. You know, So there could be multiple partners involved in delivering that plan, and I'm not, not being critical of that, but other than to say that we were not a statutory service, so when, when cuts came, particularly post 2010 mm-hmm. when I started to notice you know significant shifts in the field 
CLD was vulnerable. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's how I've always been brought up with him. So I started working in, when was it? I got my sessional post in 2011. So I was, I was only 16. I volunteered where I did. Um, but the whole time when we were starting, there was always just that talk conversation about cuts. There was always just that about that there's no any money and we really need to watch what we're doing. And it was just like, I didn't understand background why. So the people obviously understand the context. I'm just new in the door buzzing that I'm actually getting to pay, do something that I really like. And, <laughs> and to be fair, to a certain level, I probably am still really oblivious because I don't look at it politically. I'm very where I am, working where I am. And, Working for like the community that I work in, I'm no, no, I'm not a big, I'm not a big picture guy in terms of the bureaucracy and the politics. I just go in and do my thing, which there's probably pros and cons to that if we reflect on it and think about it properly. Um, but for that, like coming in, that was always what we were told. Every sort of October when budgets were announced and you were sitting, and you get pulled into meetings and you're like, there's going to be cuts, there's going to yeah. be this and that, and um, I think a big part of that as well is that people don't always understand the value of what we do. Um, people are making decisions of no listening or they're no seeing and we're no as visible and that's a job that CLD, we need to be more visible and creative and show higher ups in places actually just how class that we are and what we actually do and I know that's easier said than done in some places, especially if it's no, people are demotivated and they're struggling and all that sort of stuff but that's I think, a big task that we need to do as a sector, you know, to save ourselves and save the communities that we work with. I agree. Yeah. Aye. No, absolutely. So, um, has there been any role models, I suppose, that um, you've had in your career, or has there been anybody that's maybe just really supported you that bit that you'd like to maybe highlight? Um, I mean, early on in my career, when I first went to college, there was a guy called Bob Montgomery, mm-hmm. and Bob was a, an ex miner um, who obviously the pits had shut. You know, it was only a decade or so before that there had been the miners' strike. Bob retrained. He ended up being a sociologist. Uh, and he really inspired me, yeah. encouraged me. You know, it's a cliche, but encouraged me how to think rather than what to think. Yeah. You know, he was a, a kind of critical educator. Uh, so he was a really big inspiration. And I wanted to, I mean, I was 21, 22 at the time. I wanted to do the job that Bob did. Yeah. You know, and that was why I was always attracted to kind of college lecturing that then mm. later became lecturing at university. Uh, so he was a, a yeah. role model. And then when I got to, to, to university, there was lecturers on the programme that mm. were big influences on me. Um, Ian Martin was a, a lecturer here for, for, for many years. Mm. And another example of a, a critical educator made you think, going back to politics, about the politics of education, um, you know, philosophical underpinnings of, of education. Mm. And this idea that, some of, some of it I find kind of problematic at times, but this idea that, that education's not neutral, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that this is putting it crudely, but you have to kind of take a side between people that are oppressed and people that are doing the oppression, you know, the kind of very and ideas yeah. that influenced me and, and switched me on but practitioners as well I mean I could talk all day about theorists ah. that, that that have influenced me but practitioners as well I remember mm. one of my first managers in local government was a guy called Alistair Mathers mm. um, who was I think it was regeneration at that time or social inclusion he, anyway he was the, the manager of the service 
And and he was a great example of what you could achieve yeah. in day-to-day settings. Because if you've got that political analysis, it's easy to become quite demoralised, mm-hmm. you know, that we can't change society unless we overthrow capitalism and the, the free market. Whereas Alistair was a great example of the, the practical things that you could do in local yeah. government, the pragmatic day-to-day changes in the lives of people in um, uh, communities. And I've always kind of stuck you know, clung to that and and try to to kind of pass that on to to students as well. Yeah. You know that there are small local examples of good groundbreaking practice yeah. that transforms the lives of individuals and and communities. So I'm always trying to to keep that in mind. Yeah, no, definitely. What's the what you know, it came into my head just when you mentioned? So, what is the main differences from? Um, College, I suppose working within a college in terms of being a, a lecturer, a teacher in the universities is like a different because it's just I think you've, the way you've spoke about them, it just seems like there's a difference. I might be just picking it up wrong. Between college and university? Uh, is there like a difference in terms of like, I suppose, your roles and the approach? Or, like, I don't know. We, I, the answer, the simple answer is I don't know. It was a uh, long time since I, mean, I did my college education in the late 90s. Uh, <laughs> It's a long time ago. We work quite closely with the colleges. Aye. I mean, the, I consider the colleges to be uh, a partner. Aye, you know, and, and one of the things that I'm trying to do is kind of map our curriculum so HNC students are studying similar things to, say, first year at the university, yeah. reading the same um, uh, materials, mm. uh, engaging with the same uh, uh, texts. Um, perhaps in... Again, this is just based on experience, so I, I, I could be—I I could stand to be corrected. Perhaps the academic emphasis is, is, yeah. is less emphasised in in, in 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 college. You know, we're often having to support students in first year in terms of of how to do referencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Connor, you know, universities have changed a lot. There used to be this yeah. kind of perception, particularly of this university, mm. Edinburgh, which is quite middle class and yeah, yeah. bourgeois and all the rest of it. Ah. Th- and there was this reputation that you know, students didn't get support mm-hmm. and you were just thrown in at the deep end. And we now have quite extensive support yeah. for students. Um, you know, because the student population is very diverse. It's, yep. it's also neurodiverse as well. People come from, you know, a vast array of different backgrounds and, you know, quite intense support is yeah. put in place. We now have, for example, designated student advisors mm. at, at the University of Edinburgh. We didn't have that when I when I came here. Yeah. Uh, and that's about equality as well. Absolutely. You know, it's putting up the scaffolding so people that are maybe not naturally... Uh, academic have a good chance yeah. all being well of, of of getting their degrees so to answer your question yet yeah, there probably is some Aye. differences but at the same time I think you know we do a lot of work in terms of bridging that gap and you know the I very much see the HNC which is delivered via the college as an entry into the degree program. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the HNC programs are great. Um, so the, I was going to add on my NC, and then I ended up getting a full time job as I was going to go and do the HNC. So I ended up dropping out. One ever, I know I, I did. I signed up for the HNC, and then ended up pulling out just because of that. Because ended up, I thought I would try the work experience route, yep. um, and I actually really enjoyed the college experience and 
Um, I was at Annie's Land at the time, which is, I don't even know, they've changed the name yet now. Um, but it was a great course, and it was great just to get your um, to get thinking and your feet in under the table, I suppose, as well, and that sort of different way of studying and thinking. Um, they were class. Um, so then, has there been any memorable moments or highlights of your career that you'd like to share? Memorable moments or highlights? Do you know, I, I often think, but I don't have, like, one particular thing, you know, yeah. that... I I, th- I think back to it and think yeah that was a memorable moment. There's lots of them. I, I often go back to the late nineties. I found myself doing this recently, going back to the late nineties, mm-hmm. early two thousands. Sometimes with rose tinted spectacles. Yeah. I, I've just written an article, and I think I said in the article that that was a golden era for CLD. Yeah. You know, you'd had coming out the nineties. You'd had New Labour coming into power. Um, you started to see an increase in public expenditure in the second term, mm-hmm. not in the first term. They stuck to conservative spending plans for the first two years, which for anyone that was wanting change would have been disappointed by yeah. that. But there was investment, and you saw that mm-hmm. by the mid-2000s. You know, When I worked in CLD in the early 2000s, you had a big team. Yeah. We had... Uh, strands within our team for each of the domains of practice um, and it, it felt you know like like we were part of something that was you know quite quite significant yeah, so that difference. yeah that period I, I often think but maybe it's just being nostalgic for the fact that I was 25 or <laughs> Oasis Insider <laughs> yes however <laughs> However young I was in that period, because at the time I yeah. was very critical of New Labour and uh, 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 Tony Blair. I, I saw that as a, a betrayal of socialism and even social democracy. So, and, and, and there's the Iraq War. I'm not forgetting that. Um, but in the context of in the context of CLD, it, it felt like a kind of golden era. Yeah. Community planning um, was around. There was a statutory obligation for. You know, local government to consult with communities. CLD yep. was given uh, a strategic role in that. It felt at the heart of um, uh, uh, policy making. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that would be a kind of time that I would look back to. But as I say, also with rose tinted nostalgia as well. Aye, no, absolutely. What's your uh, favourite thing about being a lecturer and like your current role? Because I think seeing students and taking them through a journey, like it must be a real cool experience and um, challenging as well, don't get me wrong, I know that there'll be multiple challenges that you just need to face, but what is it, I suppose, the thing that you really enjoy about this? Um, I mean, I like my work, yeah. you know, and I have a lot of autonomy Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's certain things that I have to do, but this this has been the best job I've had. You know, I have a lot of autonomy, uh, supportive uh, colleagues and mm-hmm. managers um, as well. Uh, and because I grew up in an environment where people hated their work, yeah. you know, and work was hard and physical and dirty, and yeah. you know, and, and people kind of lived to escape their work you know so to to do a job where you don't feel that way uh, 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 about your work is it's a privilege uh, Connor to to be honest not to say that there's not parts of the job that are not demanding and and then you know there's yeah you see the students develop 
and you can see that progression over the three to four years yeah. that, that we have them. They become more academically confident, um, more you know, comfortable in talking in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know it's life changing. You know people have come to me and have said, you know, doing this degree has changed my life in yeah. a good way, um, and, and, and a positive way. So it's great to be part um, of of that story. No, absolutely. And it's I think that it's really special as well when you find yourself in a job that you feel that way about because no everybody will get that at all. So just for you personally, like I just think that's amazing that that is how you you feel, and it means then. When you do come into work, that it's not always that chore as yeah. well, um, where you're able then to enjoy it and um, you're able then to thrive in it and feel creative and do all that stuff. So um, that and, is that's really cool. And that's what attracted me to CLD yeah. in in the first place. I mean, my background, you know, men went into trades. Yeah. That, that's what men did, and I went through a difficult couple of years of getting apprenticeships and then quitting them. Mm -hmm because it was not what I wanted to do, but it was how you'd been socialised. Yeah. It was how my parents had been socialised. There was less opportunities. My dad always used to say to me, I wished I'd went to university. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be a, a PE teacher. Oh, okay. uh, now, he never went to university because in those days, less than 10% of the population mm -hmm. went to university. So it's not that I'm more gifted or brighter than my dad or anything like that. I just was around in a time when there was more opportunities cool. and there was a huge expansion of the, the the university sector. But yeah, it was what attracted me to to, to, to go into CLD, um, you know, away, f away from, you know, kind of physical alienating jobs that, right. that I didn't want to do. Yeah, definitely. You'd mentioned you'd wrote an article. Um, so like... What a sort of party, so is that part of your role that you need to, I suppose, write articles and be published, or is that just something that you enjoy doing and you like the opportunities? Just I enjoy doing it, yeah. Um, and I've I've written essays and articles all my life. Yeah. You know, I said I was active on the left, so I used to write for publications like you know, a Scottish Left Review, and it was blogs. But then when I got into academia it became part of the job yeah. you know that you would be published um, I'm also the editor of um, or on the editorial board of concept mm -hmm. that's a community education journal and it's quite different from academic journals academic journals are peer-reviewed mm -hmm. and often just read by academics whereas concept is practitioner based journal oh, okay. you know so we try to encourage people that are in the field to, to write you know uh, uh, essays and I've been involved in that for a number of years yeah. um, I've, never, I've never heard the concept we'll, need, we'll link that into the description I'll check that out as well that yeah, sounds really cool yeah definitely Hi. no that sounds really cool do you, do you enjoy that yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do I, I struggle with writing at times yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of my limitations mm -hmm. as, as a writer and I have to to work at it, yep. you know, I often struggle with with writer's block. Um, I, my real passion is teaching. That's yeah. what I, I, that's what I really like doing. Um, but yeah, writing is important, and I and I think ideas can change. I'm trying to think how I word this. I, ideas can be quite simplistic when they're just in your head, mm -hmm. and then you try to write them down, and they become something happens in that process. They yeah. become more problematic, more opaque, if you like. And I notice that with writing, I've always found writing a, a really rewarding experience mm -hmm. when I 
when I get into it. Uh, but it takes me a long time, yeah. you know. And I've never wanted to just write for the sake of it. You know, there, there is a culture of that. And, mm. and not writing for the sake of it, but, you know, academics will have targets. They have to be published two, three times over a certain period okay. in certain journals, and it can become quite perfunctory. Yeah. Whereas I, I like to write if I'm passionate about something, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I feel genuinely that I've got, something to say or, or you know some sort of contribution to make yeah. no, that's really cool I didn't realise that part of um, some journal, well, journals that then you need to, there's quotas I suppose that you need to meet within that that within there's a time limit and I suppose that would then take the fun out of it a bit if you do have writer's block and you know you've got a deadline like you know and that's it's the same way any job when you know that it needs to be done it's no always the funnest task if we've got Deadlines and outcomes that we need to achieve and meet. So, oh no, that's pretty cool. No, I'm at, that's cool. We'll do the whole link concept into yeah. that. I've, I've always nice. liked writing. When I was younger, I, I wrote poetry. Oh, I don't cool. know if it was any good or not. I kept, I've always kept a journal, yeah. not of personal stuff, but just, well, more personal since my son was born, just making observations. Mm-hmm. I sometimes write with him in mind, thinking <laughs> he might be interested in it one yeah. day. But I write about you know, events that are going on in the world. And I, I tried to write a novel once. I wrote half yeah. a novel. And what made you stop? I didn't know how to end it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I just got you just lost. Say, just say part one. And, I, and then <laughs> other things happened, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. It's still there, you know, if I ever decide to go back to it. But I liked writing. I yeah. enjoyed writing. Academic writing's very different, though. Mm-hmm. You become almost socialised into a certain way of writing, I yep. Oftentimes, I think academic writing can be quite dry, yeah, yeah. quite bland. I often read it because I have to read it, yeah, yeah. and the, it, it can be quite technical, and there can be a lot of jargon in it, and it, 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 ah. it it's not always an easy read. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I'm not uh, engaged in academia, I do enjoy to read books and fiction yeah, yeah. and that kind of stuff. No, that's really, that's really, really cool. No, I like that. That's um, something I've ever actually tried. Like. Um, to like write, I've done my essays and stuff like that, and but it's no really. I'm dyslexic as well, so I, I prefer try and avoid it as much as I can. Um, is the truth, but um, no, that that's really cool. That one day you should try and finish that novel. <laughs> that would be class. That'd be really really cool. Um, I might get sectioned rather than published. Anyone <laughs> was to to read it, but I enjoyed doing it. I wasn't writing it thinking it was getting published or yeah. anything like that. I enjoyed Just the, the hobby. The, and the, yeah, I enjoyed the creative process of doing yeah. it. No, that's really cool. Um, so we, I suppose that was just memorable moments and highlights, so let, we'll just flip that into challenges. Um, so has there been like any challenges that you've maybe experienced, but um, I suppose maybe what are they if you're able to share, but what have you really learned from it as well? The biggest challenge is for me, so if I was saying the memorable moments go back to the early 2000s and, you know, that quote-unquote golden era that probably wasn't that golden. Um, The challenges came for me Mm post-2010. You know, if you go back to that period, the financial crash had happened Mm -hmm. in in, in 2008. Uh, The Conservatives came into power. Um, I mean, David Cameron had kind of presented himself to the Guardian and the the BBC as a kind of centrist. You know, if you read the papers in those days, it was like Hugga Hoodie and, you know, he was a a new type of Tory. He was actually quite right wing, him and Osborne, when it it came to the economy. Um, And I mention that because what followed was almost a decade of unprecedented cuts 
to, to local government budgets. I think it, you know, post austerity there was eighty five billion pounds worth of cuts. Wow. Um, biggest set of cuts yeah. uh, in the in, in the post war era. And as a practitioner, you started to see the change. I mean, yeah. number one, the big team that I had been part of with three different strands of practice and, you know, quite a significant management team, that was all cut. Yeah. You know, people started to lose their jobs. I think the Jimmy Reid Foundation had said that by the time you got to 2015, 30,000 local government jobs had, had been lost. Wow. Community centres were getting closed. The centre that I worked in, you know, in those glory days was shut in, in, in 2011. And I was really angry about that, yeah. Connor, because the cuts often fell in poorer, marginalised communities where they didn't have much. Mm -hmm. And what little they had was getting taken away from them. Yeah. Swimming pools, community centres, libraries. Social spaces. Um, it, it was a really difficult and, 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 and challenging time uh, you know to be a to, to be a practitioner yeah. what, what did I learn from that um, there was resistance to cuts I was involved in anti-cuts groups mm -hmm. and that was quite difficult yeah. uh, as a CLD practitioner you know because I was talking earlier about things such as community planning and whilst we talk about participation and democracy and empowerment we've never been particularly good at incorporating oppositionalism into existing structures. Mm. It tends to be a certain type of person that's involved in the official governance structures, you know, the, the consultative elite. And I'm not criticising these people. I'm saying how do we engage with people that are kind of outside that system? Yeah. How, how can we make that kind of system, I would argue, more kind of democratic mm -hmm. uh, so it, it can it can encompass voices that are not naturally inside the system like for example anti-cuts groups yeah. um, and one of the things I think CLD workers I don't think they do do it but I think there's an argument to do it is to provide communities with kind of counter information that mm. that to me should be part of the the educational process because austerity is about economics so there's no point in just being angry about austerity you should yeah. be angry about it but it's well how do you challenge it and yeah. if you want to challenge it you need to have an understanding of economics mm. Um, so I was, some of my research was related to this. I was interested in things like, well, what would alternative economic strategies look like? Yeah. You know, I, I thought it was a scandal that, you know, the chief executive of local authorities, they were earning over £100,000. It was the annual running cost yeah. of the community centre that was being closed. Councils were having to pay back millions and don't know if you remember PFI, Private Finance Initiative. It was a form of no. privatisation. Councils would take out like a 30, 40 year mortgage, including interest rates, and would have to pay that back mm -hmm. for buildings, community centres, schools. At the same time, they were making cuts. So money was going into to, to, to private corporations. The amount that local government could borrow, I think they called it the public sector uh, borrowing requirement, mm -hmm. had been cut by successive governments, uh, which meant there was less scope for local government yeah. to invest. So, th so the point I'm making is there's, there's a role for CLD to try and provide, you know, kind of counter information 
Um, and we did that with yeah. community groups that, that we were working with that wanted to challenge some of the cuts and just didn't accept it. Yeah. And then were they then like presented then to the councils or local authorities areas that so that then they could potentially make different choices or how, how did that process work? Some after? building shut. I mean, yeah, the community yeah. centre that I worked in was demolished. You know, and, and, and I think it's now private housing. Um, and councils were keen to sell off their land, mm-hmm. you know, to private to private housing developers. Um, you know, so a lot of those, you know, buildings had gone. There was an attempt to, you know, in the early twenty tens to say, could the third sector plug the gap when mm-hmm. you know when the state retreats? The idea was that the third sector. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of great third sector projects. We Absolutely. work in partnership with them, and I think the third sector has a role to play. But I was also quite sceptical of that idea of contracting out services um, to uh, cheaper providers yeah. in, 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 in the third sector. Um, and oftentimes that was the strategy by the council, to try and build the capacity of communities mm-hmm. to provide the service themselves, things like asset transfer. Mm-hmm. But that was really problematic, some of it. I mean, in poorer communities where it was difficult to build capacity, communities often didn't have the skills um, to do yeah. that. So more middle-class, affluent communities were better able uh, 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 to do it. Yeah. And then there's then, because of the cuts and the reduction, there's then no one there to support the marginalised communities to then have a voice and to share their opinion because they need guidance and yeah. people need showing if you've never done something like that before, yeah. how do you do it properly and in an organised way that can potentially make a difference. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think... That's just a cycle. I don't think the third sector can replace the state. You know, no. I, I think there needs to be a role for the state to play, particularly in the times that we're living in, where there's a crisis in markets, there's a broader crisis in capitalism. You know, the, the whole COVID crisis demonstrated yeah. that you need the state. Um, and yes, the state can be top-down, authoritarian, bureaucratic. I'm aware of all those um, uh, uh, criticisms, but it's also a way of providing equal access to services that are funded out of general taxation. Uh, and I tend to think, you know, this is the socialist in me that, you know, libraries, swimming pools, community centres, these should be provided out of collective taxation. I always remember Tony Benn was one of my role models, or yeah. uh, one of my heroes. And uh, Tony Benn made an argument not long before he died, he died in 2014. Um, and he said that the cuts were not just an attack economically, Mm -hmm. they were also an attack on democracy because people had secured with their vote services that they couldn't afford to get in the marketplace. So communities that couldn't afford to get swimming pools, libraries, these types of things had got that through their vote and Mm -hmm. through the creation of the welfare state. And I saw that being eroded post-2010 and was, was just really angry about it, and, and one of the one of the things that that was so f- frustrating about it was that yes, there was opposition to austerity, but uh, 
austerity also created its own kind of logic and its mm. own kind of narrative and, and people bought into it. Oftentimes the cuts were implemented by Labour and SNP yeah. councillors, people that didn't go into politics to make cuts to public services, but because of the way the system is structured in local government felt that there was no alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had, again, Labour, SNP politicians involved in, in, right. in closing services and that was kind of really demoralizing uh, for, for me yeah. when, when when I saw that I remember a Pierre Bourdieu quote I think it's from Bourdieu but the success of neoliberalism was that it was put into practice by people who called themselves socialists yeah. <laughs> or social democrats you know yeah. no it isn't I think like um I think that, that back to the, first, the part of the third sector as well. Like we, are, if we talk, if we're talking twenty twenty three, there's been loads of cuts in terms of the cashback community grant. I think is that's been reduced. Well, I know that's been reduced. I don't think that's been reduced. That doesn't exist as we speak right now, and that totally impacts on a lot of the work that actually a lot of third sectors and um, council organisations and youth clubs rely on that funding, and it disappeared this year. So it did. It's never returned, and there's so many. Now, like um, youth clubs and um, football groups and all these things that are now just stopped and finished, and there doesn't seem to be an answer at the moment, which is just a shame. Um, we're recording this um, actually the day before we're going to do a celebration to the Cashback Award with the um, Wake um, Youth Link Cashback for Communities that will come out on Wednesday. So, this context by the conversation will be a wee bit out of date because that will already be out, um, but it's like it's a proper shame that then these organisations aren't able to access this money and there's just all these youth clubs and things that just aren't able then to run anymore because we relied on that money for 15 years some of these organisations and clubs um, which is just an absolute shame Yeah and what I find really challenging Connor about the current context, maybe this is just the way I'm feeling, you know listeners might think otherwise but there doesn't seem to be any alternative Um, you know the if, if you know, you know, I'm interested in politics. The Scottish independence movement looks quite split, mm-hmm. <laughs> certainly from from where it was in, in 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 2014. And I'm not naive. It was always, you know, there was always questions around Scottish independence and how viable it was. Um, but the movement mm-hmm. looks quite split from from where from where I'm sitting. Labour doesn't look like it's got any alternative. I mean, this is. A familiar theme in British politics. I listened to Steve Richards' podcast, um, and he was saying that a familiar theme in British politics is that you get a long period of Tory government. You know, you had that in the eighties and nineties. You've got it now, and you're coming to the end of that period. They're really unpopular. The opinion polls show that you know the public are siding to Labour, mm-hmm. but at the same time, Labour feels the only way they can win is to imitate Tory economic policies. So you've got Starmer, I think, is saying he's not committed to increasing public spending. Uh, And he's going to fight the election on quite a fiscally conservative uh, uh, manifesto. Um, So I I do find that quite Mm demoralising, you know, that there just seems to be a, a, a lack of alternatives. And, and maybe that's one of the roles that kind of critical or radical CLD practitioners can, can play is, you know, to try and say, well, what, what could the alternative be? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we're sort of in that, see where does CLD and how does it change you sort of conversation. Um, but that is, it's if there's no, if there isn't going to be um, 
an increase in public spending, then well, it's just it's uh, to say it plainly, it's bad times all round. You know, it's how what are we supposed to do when there's when funds that have always been there aren't they there? What what can we do? We actually for one of our projects, a local business has funded our group, so we had to close them. Um, and uh, two, uh, two local businesses have came together for, to fund a group for 12 weeks. £900 it cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, I don't know the exact number. It was like £868. I don't know exact. But, um, so they've gave us that so that then we can still run a youth club, so that we can still run in these projects for young people that have been in the community for years. Um, we shouldn't need to rely on local businesses. There should be other options and alternatives, but just now there is any. And there's... We don't know what to do. So, um, suppose if you're also listening to this one, you're listening to the cashback one. It is. We need to be creative, and I think that we need to start like shouting at the government about it yeah. and shouting at people about it because it's it's tough. Yeah, I mean, there is still investment in public services. I mean, mm. you, you know, public spending, I think, increased yeah. post Brexit, um, but because health and education, because that was ring fenced. The cuts disproportionately happened in local yeah. government, um, and and you know that's the kind of context that, that we are talking about, and that continues. I mean, you've just seen is it Birmingham City Council have 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 just went bankrupt. Yeah. I didn't know that could happen. Uh, like, but oh, like, and I'm really naive on this stuff, and I've said this and all this stuff. I didn't think like a council could become bankrupt. I didn't yeah. know that was a thing. And like, and then that raises questions, Connor, about democracy. Who is running the councils? Yeah. My experience of local government is that it tends to be ele- it tends not to be elected members. Oftentimes, it's you know the managerial class that mm-hmm. are running um, uh, local government. Despite the rhetoric of empowerment, democracy, participation, Scotland, the UK in general is a very centralised state mm-hmm. where there's not that much you know um, local democracy. Uh, and, and, and local autonomy. But the sad thing for me, and I'm sorry, listeners, if this is coming across as ne- negative all the time, the sad thing for me is that these issues don't get onto the political agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, and coverage of local government, you know, for example, is, I, I tend to think, is quite poor yeah. um, in, in Scotland. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, so what about your PhD? Um I know that um, we wanted just to sort of like share some parts of that. It's a massive piece of work, putting yourself through a PhD. It's years of happiness, crying, stress, you know. So um, I suppose, what was it that some of your findings in the PhD that you'd like to share with the listener? Um, I mean, some of it we've already touched yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, my I, I started in that post-10 mm-hmm. context to be interested in, you know, just the changing nature of public sector work of community learning and development in particular. So my PhD was about that, um, you know, austerity and its its impact on on communities. But I also noted that the work was changing, the nature of the work was changing. Um, You know, community education used to be defined, and I'll get this wrong, but I, I think it was defined as a as an educational practice that grows out of the social issues that are generated in communities. Mm-hmm. You know, and you worked with communities to identify their priorities yep. and every community worker worth their salt would agree with that. What started to happen post-2010 was that the work became cl- more closely aligned with mm-hmm. government policy. Mm-hmm. So youth work and adult education in local government 
became completely dominated by employability. Yeah. And it was the funding culture post-austerity. Managers, if they wanted to invest in their services or get money for their services, had to demonstrate that they could um, deliver you know, yeah. government uh, policy. So the work of the sector became more closely aligned with, with government. Mm. So that was something that interested me. What did that mean for a profession that was supposed to be about democracy mm. and the grassroots and, and participation? There was particular contradictions there. The work was also becoming more bureaucratic. It was There was an increase in what was called new public managerialism. Mm. Um, and, and you can trace the history of that back yeah. to the 1980s, and it was always linked to making public sector workers more productive, mm. but with productivity defined narrowly in terms of meeting government outcomes, mm -hmm. and also reducing public expenditure. You know, the view was that if professionals were left to run services, they would overproduce services relative to the needs of the population. So you needed quite strict managerial regimes to keep public spending down yeah. um, uh, and so new public managerial uh, techniques were kind of brought in, you know, a focus on performance indicators, outcomes, outputs, quality assurance, wow. an increase in inspections, um, management information systems which were kind of management tools that were brought in from the private sector. Mm. The language was changing. It yeah. was less that social democratic language that had inspired me, you know, the language of the... Al if you go back and read the Alexander Report, it's a really inspiring text. Mm. It, it talks about democracy, working with the grassroots. That had all changed. Yeah. And it was a more technocratic, managerial language... Um, that, that was starting to dominate, not just CLD, this was coming in across the public sector. Um, and so that was one of the things that I wanted to study in my PhD. Yeah. And I'm not, yeah, I sound, I'm, I'm critical of that, but I also understand the arguments that workers need to be made accountable yeah, yeah, yeah. for the work that they do. I can, I can see the logic in it. But in that wider context, I, I, I do think it was linked to austerity and the you know the the fiscal crisis of of the state yeah how did you find yourself actually going through the phd process because it is it's years you know it's a it's a long long time and it's hard work like how was that for you as an experience and something to try and like delve into such a like also a large topic as well yeah it took a long time yeah. um it, it took me four to five years yeah. and i was working at, at the same mm -hmm. time as well, I was still working in local government and then I started to do uh, more work in a academia. And in life, you know, your life changes yeah. over the course of five years. I lost, lost a close family member mm -hmm. in that period. My son was born. You know, it was quite a, well, in some cases, traumatic time for me as well. And yeah. you had this PhD to do. Yeah. The, the a positive, lot of yeah, that, a yeah. lot of pressure. The positive was that you got to devote yourself to something that you were passionate about. Yep. And I say that to students that are doing a dissertation, you know, any, you know, um, academic challenge of great word length, you know, this is your chance to focus on something that you are interested in, yeah. and switch off from the wider world and just focus on that. And that's a great thing, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to 
to, to, to do that. The downside of it is that it can be quite unhealthy as well, just right. sitting in your study all day reading and writing. You lose touch with the, the, wider, the wider world. I think one of the reasons I adapted to COVID so well, because yeah. I'm an introvert and I'd just done the whole PhD thing, yeah. I spent three years on my own in my room on a computer. Yeah. So when COVID struck... You were already doing that. Yeah, I'd done it for, yeah, for, for, yeah. for quite a while. But, you know, there is another price to pay for that. Yeah, no, You know, definitely. in terms of mental health and stuff. And there's a whole literature base about, you know, PhD students and, you know, the impact it has on their health, men, mental health and well-being. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's such a, it's an amazing thing to achieve. Um, but I think that a lot of people don't always... I don't think a lot of people always understand the gravity of work, I suppose, and I'm learning more and more from just doing this podcast alone. I didn't realise just how in-depth they were, how much you had to really put into them. I knew it was a lot because I understand it's a doctorate, I understand that's a lot of work at a very like basic level, but I think for people to put themselves through that and achieve that is just, it's amazing and it's a testament as well to the passion for CLD because you're putting yourself through something that is very difficult, that is really challenging um, but the benefits there is that you're hoping it to improve something somewhere and to put yourself through that it's just dead commendable I think um, so it's well played in doing it I think um, and I think if people are listening as well I'm I'm interested in them no, no anywhere near yet potentially doing one um, but I just think that they're really, it's a really cool thing to be able to do and I think that helps that professionalism of what we are and who we are as a sector that mm-hmm. there is these high high quality degrees people understand that language people understand PhD language they understand masters I think that just backs up how important our server service is and it isn't just that plain pool it isn't just that having a chat there's so much more into it and the learning and the academia is dead important I think mm. and people achieving these just I think improves that cause mm-hmm. um, which I think is dead important yeah. Um, so we'll take it to the last question of the podcast, if that's okay. Um, yeah, sure. So what it is is it's a signature question we ask everybody this. So what advice would you like to give someone who's looking to start a career in CLD? Uh, that's a big question. What advice would I give yeah. someone? Um, I would obviously encourage people to get qualified. Yep. You know. Um, and it's not a criticism of people that don't have qualifications delivering the service. But I do think of CLD as a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changed, you know, and we could debate what is meant by profession and there are different types of um, ideas around um, professions. But yeah, we definitely encourage people to get training yep. and go to college and go to, to university um, as well. There's always a role for you know, frontline practitioners that don't want to do that and are yeah. not able to do that, that's also part of our profession. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't deny that. You know, I think these we're different from social work and teaching in that regards, you know. That's what makes it special. It does. And, you know, you wouldn't get to be a teacher um, unless you're qualified and approved by their professional association. Similarly, you wouldn't get to practice social work. Yeah. And there's good reasons for that. But we're different. You know, we're, we're democratic, we're about enabling people. And for some people, it, you know, going down the road to college and university is not right for them or it's not right for them at that particular time. Mm. Um, but if you get the chance to do it, do it. And yeah. it, it, it can change, 
your life. It can change your life in a practical sense, but also particularly uh, in a kind of spiritual sense yeah. as well. Um, you know, that's we're always learning, aren't we? And that's what, what our profession is about, lifelong learning. I, You know, you were talking about PhDs. I don't feel like the finished article. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in fact, you know, the older I've gotten, the less I feel that I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and things that I used to be quite certain about are suddenly quite kind of problematic. And, mm. I, and I think that's also the sign of, you know, uh, education as well. Yep. You know, so that would be my advice to people go into college, go into education, and doors open up for you Absolutely. Once, once you do that. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add just before we finish up? Quite happy. No, I'm happy with that. No, Connor. brilliant. So this has been CLD Talks with Gary Fraser. Just thanks very much for um, spending the, um, the afternoon mm-hmm. with us and just sharing your experience and journey. Yeah, no, it's really a pleasure. It. Thank you. Cheers.